Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kitchen. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our guest this week, unsurprisingly, is a medical expert. He's a global health researcher and an epidemiologist, a word that I find impossible to say. Dr. Michael Head, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming to my home. Thanks for letting us in uh, to spread our corona, if we have it. Um, but uh, epidemiologist, I, I managed to say it, it's, uh, it's a profession that's become a lot sexier these days, isn't it? Yes. No one had heard of us until about two or three months ago. And then suddenly we're in the news everywhere. So our, our sexiness rating has gone from zero to well, maybe a little bit, but it is there now. Absolutely. Nailing it on Tinder. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what an epidemiologist is, first of all, because I assumed it was someone who studies epidemics, but actually it's just someone who studies disease. Yeah, so the word epidemiology, epidemiology, hard to say, literally means the study of disease. So you do have epidemiologists who study um, non-infectious disease stuff. So there's epidemiologists who do cancer and heart disease and stroke and all that sort of thing. And then there's those of us like me who do infectious diseases. And suddenly we are sexy. Oh, wow. So uh, you've become a celebrity now. Yes, I mean, in the last couple of months, coronavirus has kicked off big time. Um, Rarely in the past have I been in demand like this. I've done the occasional bit in the media in the past. Um, But when my press office first asked me about this outbreak that's kicking off in China, and they said, if the press come along, do you want to comment? I said, yeah, fine, no worries. And then the press did come along and actually asked me to comment. And I thought, well, hang on, let's get Googling now, I guess, really, hadn't I? Because no one knew anything about it. The people were asking us questions that we didn't know the answers to. So I think that certainly initially our kind of collective responses to the media was basically, don't know, really. Um, let's try and find out things as we go along. Um, but so, yeah, so we've been in a large amount of demand over the last couple of months. All right. Well, let, let's get into the reason why. Obviously, this situation has, has come to the fore in, in, in a way that people didn't, many people didn't expect, myself included. Francis has been banging on about it for, for months now. I've been banging on about it. And in Constantine's words, don't worry about it. It's just a... Bit of flow. <laughs> That's what I thought. I readily admit to it. But what I started to notice is all the people that I follow on Twitter, scientists that we've had on the show in the past, all of them were taking it seriously. And it was dickheads like me going, oh, it's just the flu. So on balance, I thought maybe this is serious. And obviously now it really is. We're recording this on Thursday. It'll probably go out in a few days from now. Uh, things that seem to be picking up. So uh, one of the things I wanted to start with is... Um, how serious is it now and how serious is it likely to get? So where are we at the moment? So it is proper serious. Often you see people like me being a bit more pragmatic and sort of saying, well, it's not serious yet, that sort of thing. We are at the stage where globally and the UK, it is serious. It's bad and it is quite scary. And we now have at least 200,000 diagnosed cases around the world. There'll be many, many more times than that undiagnosed. Focusing on the UK... We are, you've seen all the graphs with the various peaks on them that are mm. constantly in the, in the news. We are basically at the start of that peak, or, or sorry, at the start of that graph, at the bottom end of it. Um, the, the peak is yet to come. That will be over the coming weeks or months. And then hopefully in a few months' time, at least the numbers will subside, if not the problem. Uh, but to even to get to the point where we've reached the top and it's starting to come down again, that's still a long way off. So there's a lot of pain yet to come. So we're at the very, very beginning of this. Do you think that the government were reckless in their pursuit of herd immunity and saying, well, the majority of people will get it and then they will create essentially a group of people who are immune to it and then we can carry on as a society? I think that was slightly poorly explained, um, but th- there's a theory behind it mm. and the theory works. Whether the practice does or not is another matter. 
that when you get an infection, after most infections, you do have a bit of immunity left to it. So if you have the flu, you won't normally get that strain of flu again quickly, if at all. If you get the common cold, you almost never will get that strain again. There's lots of different types of common cold, which is why we always get colds. Um, so the theory here, and there's a little bit of evidence to back it up, but we don't really know properly yet, is that people will have some level of immunity we don't know how long for. So if enough people do get it, we don't want that to happen, clearly, because that's a problem. But if enough people do get it, then that might have some protective effect upon those who haven't got it yet. But we don't know the answer to that. And what we do need is a test, which is coming in probably a few weeks, but not yet, that will tell us if people have had the disease. So the tests at the moment are, are testing for the kind of the virus as you got it. It tests for their for RNA, which is a bit like DNA, but their genetic code, basically. So we can test accurately for that. Whether you've already had it, you need to test for antibodies, essentially. So various diagnostic firms in the UK and around the world are sort of frantically racing each other to produce some really good quality tests to look at the people who have already had the disease. Um, and then that can inform our sort of our, uh, strategies going forward. If we know that everyone's had it, you can then send them back to work, for example, and things like that. So it would be a bit of a, a game changer if, if and as and when we do have it. We will have it at some point, but that's a few weeks away and a few weeks in a pandemic is a very, very long time indeed. Yeah. Well, actually, this is one of the things that I, one of the reasons I wanted to get into how serious it is because, uh, you know, my wife went into town to do some shopping yesterday and she was saying, I don't think people are getting the message because particularly older people, they're still out and about. They think, like a comedian friend of us posted saying, they think it's a bank holiday for old people, the, this mm. thing that's happening. I don't think people are taking it seriously, but going off the government's figures, if they're estimating up to 80% of the public are going to get this disease, and 1%, which is, seems to be a pretty reasonable estimate, will die from it, well, if you do the maths, it's like half a million people minimum. Half a million people will die from this, and a lot of people, you know, we saw these videos from, you know, English fans, football fans or whatever in Tenerife or whatever. Uh, you know, just go, oh, it's just a bit of flu, mate. Just like me. <laughs> uh, just have a beer. It's going to be fine. You know. Behaving like legends, basically. <laughs> exactly. I'm not even sure they were football fans. They just looked like football fans. Anyway, so my point is there are people who are not taking it seriously. When, when we talk about it being serious, how many people are going to die from this? Well, we don't know. I think we can probably safely say it's going to be thousands, maybe tens of thousands. That half a million figure and the 80% figure, um, that's the kind of upper level estimates. That's the worst case scenario. So when we get modelers to calculate, to kind of try to predict the future, which is obviously so uncertain with something like this, they do have to calculate basically kind of the worst level scenario so that people can plan for that scenario. If you put measures in place, like all this social distancing and shutting things down, we should not get anywhere near that worst case scenario, but it is still a possibility. There's just no guarantees. People often sort of say, right, how many people are gonna die? How bad is it gonna be? Don't know, is the short answer. But I don't think we will get that 80% and half a million people dying, but obviously there still will be plenty of excess deaths that is not good. And who are the people most at risk of this? Is it particularly the elderly? Is it the people who are, for instance, having cancer treatments, chemotherapy? And there are a particular set of people who are at risk. I mean, it is the most vulnerable people in society, which includes the elderly. So the kind of the rough cutoff is 70 or above. Mm -hmm. um, and the older you get, the bigger the risks are. I think if you're over 90, the death rates are about 20 to 25%. It's pretty big. If you're between 70 and 90, again, it kind of goes up from 70 to 80 um, and beyond. 
Um, but it's, it's many percent of people will die in that particular demographic. In terms of children and young adults, the death rate is actually pretty low. There still are some complications. People are still being admitted to hospital, children and so on. But the overwhelming big burden of disease, the serious burden of disease, is in the elderly. It's in people, like you say, who are having cancer treatments, um, people with cystic fibrosis. Um, and if you've got other comorbidities, as we call it, basically they've got other um, things already wrong with you, like hypertension, diabetes, if you've had a stroke, um, to a certain extent, respiratory conditions like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, COPD, they're all risk factors that increase the chances of, if you get COVID, um, if you get the coronavirus, then you're likely to be a bit more ill than people who are younger and haven't got comorbidities. What about lifestyle stuff like uh, being overweight, smoking, uh, you know, stuff like that? Yeah, so smoking is certainly linked to um, increased risk of being hospitalized. That's the kind of often metric we use as to how serious it is. Do you need to go to hospital? That's the kind of kind of benchmark for a serious case often. Definition is very little bit, but you can kind of use that as a benchmark. So you're more likely to be hospitalized if you're a smoker. I mean, if you are obese and overweight, you're more likely to have things like diabetes and so on. So that would then contribute to a risk factor that would elevate the likelihood of seriousness in your particular case. It's all risk factors. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it increases the chances of um, a, a worse case. And I saw, like, and I'm going to use a lot of this interview to explode some myths because as we as we're all on social media, we've seen a lot of people saying certain things and you know people getting quite worried about it. They, they were saying there was a link between anti-inflammatories and exacerbating the condition. Is this true? Is this not true? Or do we simply not know? So, and just for people who may not know, anti-inflammatories being things like ibuprofen, etc. Yes. Right? So that probably is true, that one. We don't know. Um, so the link first came from, I think it's the French health minister who first stated it. And then a few doctors have... Um, given a few sort of pragmatic viewpoints that this probably is the case, that paracetamol is a better painkiller. I think the, the latest guidance, as I say this right now, um, is that if you are, have been told by your doctor to take things like ibuprofen, then carry on doing so, but maybe have a word with them just to see what the latest score is. And if you do have symptoms of the coronavirus, um, try and take paracetamol rather than ibuprofen. I'm on quite strong ibuprofen myself at the minute. I've got a slightly dodgy hip, so I'm on these anti-inflammatories. So I'm watching that one with great interest. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting you, you said that. And also as well, I really want to focus on this because it, I find it deeply worrying. You know, people just going, oh, I'm just living my life normally, blah, blah, blah. Like, for instance, if I'm young, I'll be fine. What effect does that actually have? And are you putting people at serious risk if you essentially go and live your life like you would? like you used to last month or three weeks ago? Um, you are putting people at risk because you might be fine, but that therein is not the problem here. The population at large, and if you want to personalise it, your elderly relatives might not be fine. So if you live your life as normal and mix a lot and have lots of contact with other people, um, if you then take a coronavirus into um, your grandmother's house, for example, then there might be problems afoot because that's a vulnerable person you're infecting right there. So we do all have a big responsibility to actually just behave a little bit um, and follow the public health guidance. It, the kind of measures that have been put in place to reduce the amount that we mix with each other and large gatherings and things like that, there is a point to it. Um, and it is to kind of reduce those big peaks and just to make the whole country a bit more, a slightly easier place to live in. And we all have a responsibility to contribute to that. 
So there you go, trigonometry. We're being irresponsible by having this face-to-face -face so you don't have to. And also, I don't get to see my mother. Excellent. Thank you for that. Actually, I, I would say, I, I think the current guidance suggests that gatherings of more than 10 are ill-advised. And there's currently three of us in front of the camera, there's somebody behind the camera, four. We're fine. We're fine. I mean, but, uh, we don't have symptoms, do we? I don't think. Anybody? No. no. no? I actually have a feeling I might have had it already because like three or four weeks ago, I had a dry cough mm. and a bit of a fever. I mean, that, that could easily have been the coronavirus. And again, in many people, the symptoms are so mild. You, you may be superhuman no. in a very precise way. I, thank <laughs> you very much. Shut up. I, I, I am superhuman. No, it's, uh, I like to say like, only the good die young. Anyway, um, so now that's the point. So, for instance, in February the 14th, uh, I remember it because it was Valentine's weekend and my girlfriend was very angry. But I had, I developed a fever and a cough. How likely is it that people have already had this like last month in February or is, did it only really appear in March and so on? I mean, it was around in February. There were far fewer cases. So it's actually less likely mm. that you have had coronavirus. The thing is, January, February, March, it's flu season. Northern Hemisphere, there's flu and coughs and colds everywhere. Mm. So that's also been a bit of a problem because hospitals and doctor surgeries are handling flu cases and slightly more and other respiratory infections as well, along with this brand new thing that's been thrown into the mix. One of the reasons why it's better to try to deal with these things over the summer is that there's fewer things like that out there, fewer cases of flu out there. So if people are getting these symptoms now, from now on, it's more likely to be coronavirus because there's less flu around. So that just makes the kind of diagnosis and case management that bit easier than it has been across the winter. And the question, uh, another question, Oh, I really want clarified, is if somebody who is young, fit and healthy gets it, what are they likely to experience in terms of symptoms and what impact is it likely to have on them? Because again, people have been sharing all sorts of nonsense articles on Facebook and Twitter and so on. I mean, most people, I mean, roughly 80% of the people who get it are not fine, but it's very low level symptoms. It's, it's the equivalent, you feel about as grotty as you do when you get a normal cold, for example. But obviously, the key as has been emphasized repeatedly by the chief medical officer, is it's, kind of, it's not about you as a relatively young, healthy person who's kind of all right. It's about protecting the people around you who are potentially not going to be right if they get it. Um, and it's also about protecting the health system from an, a large swamping of cases where well, yeah. people who need access to ICU beds or ventilators or whatever, don't, there's not enough of those things to go around if everyone gets the disease at the same time. Yeah, so I mean, if there's going to be a lot of people with a fever and a cough at the minute, as we go forward, there'll be even more. They need to hang around at home and self-isolate so that the health facilities, GPs and hospitals, are freer than they otherwise would have been so they can concentrate on the proper serious stuff. And you were saying that we're at the start of the process. <laughs> what does that mean? Can you guide us through what you think the government are going to do and the modelers are going to advise the government to do? Well, I think we've probably got a clear strategy in place for the next few weeks, which will be schools closed to kind of keep your distance from everyone, to protect the elderly, so there's kind of fewer visits to granny and that sort of thing. The kind of advice that's out there as I speak right now is probably the sort of advice we're going to have with us for at least a few weeks. I suspect that I'll probably, we'll probably look at that again. I mean, it'll be looked at again all the time, but then we might see significant changes maybe around May or so. As we start to hit the peak. Yeah, hopefully by then will be somewhere nearer the peak. Um, and things like we might see, for example, schools opening up again for a short period of time. Because um, closing schools is a big step. Yeah, It's got a, such an impact upon everyone else. 
It has the potential to take frontline health workers out of the way. It means parents can't go to work and can't earn money. So there's all these kind of secondary consequences from the relatively simple act of closing schools, but it then gets complicated. And obviously we, to some extent, need to live our lives at least a little bit, and also compliance with these public health guidelines. We've talked a little bit about lack of compliance that we've seen. It is likely, very likely, that compliance will get less as we go through, as people get a little bit fed up with it, um, and get a bit of, if you'll excuse the phrase, cabin fever from being at home the whole time. So I think it's been mentioned that we might have this so-called switching on and off of these big interventions. So we might switch off school closures and open them up again for a bit, a few weeks maybe. So we might... Just I've no to idea. give parents a bit of a relief. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I mean, I have two kids myself, so I'll be delighted when schools open back up again. <laughs> yeah. um, but So for example, I've no idea if this will happen, but a guess on my part might be that around the May half term, with that kind of second half of that term, we might see the schools open up until July. Um, and then you've got the six-week summer holiday break. There's kind of a natural time when schools are closed anyway. So... That sort of switching on and off, that's the sort of thing we might see going forward. So you don't think that uh, actually things are going to get stricter and harsher in the weeks to come? We're not gonna ha- you, you don't expect a lockdown where everyone just has to stay at home and you get to go out for an hour a day to walk the dog and buy some food? I mean, that might happen. My sense is it won't, but it does depend a little bit on whether, again, whether the population is complying. At the moment in the UK, we've kind of done this guidance for the public rather yeah. than in other scenarios in other countries where it has been lockdown you are staying at home like we've seen for example in china and some other countries they're big on human rights anyway <laughs> china's quite big on telling us population what to do yeah. yeah so i think on the whole the slightly more if you want to call it softly approach of guiding people rather than telling people is certainly in the short term better so i actually i do hope we don't need to have these kind of legally enforced lockdowns they could happen but we shall see so from what you're saying basically what i'm hearing is this is going to be with us until autumn at the very least right is that fair to say i think that's fair to say yeah bare minimum yeah and what about the second peak idea where uh essentially what like with the spanish flu there was the first peak and then actually there was a a a lull and then it came back. Do you think we may see that with this? Is it too early to tell? Well, it's too early to tell, but we might do. So with flu most seasons, actually, even with seasonal flu, you normally get peaks that vary according to, in the case of flu, according to when schools shut for school holidays and so on. So when they shut over Christmas a couple of weeks, flu cases drop, Mm. because there's normally children that are spreading it on the whole. Little fuckers. That word, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as a former teacher, I hardly concur with Constantine. The only time that's happened on our show. Sorry, yeah. carry on. No worries. My wife is a teacher. If she was here, she may well contribute to this particular conversation. Yeah. In a similar fashion I expect, yeah. but I won't speak for her. Yeah. But So in flu, they often they are the key transmitters. Um, with coronavirus, although children do seem to be getting it, they don't, they're not obviously the kind of the, the centre of it. They're not the kind of conduits that really spread. But So we do see those peaks, though in flu seasons anyway. And like you say, with Spanish flu, there was clear peaks. With coronavirus, could easily see a peak. We might find the peak that's coming in a few weeks. If we can get out the other side of that and have much lower cases, the problem might then come in the winter when everything's back. Flu's back, common colds are back, and coronavirus might increase as well. Um, So we might have to see a fair amount of Again, switching on of those interventions, switching on of the social distancing and so on in the winter. Um, it's a trickier time to live in the winter, mm. um, particularly for the vulnerable people, even more so at that point. So Comedians. 
Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you a vulnerable? Are you kind of an endangered species or vulnerable? Oh, oh there's, there's no comedy shows anymore no. happening no. right now. So we are vulnerable just through the hunger that we experience. Uh, but, <laughs> but to be fair, I need to lose weight. So <laughs> yes, you do, mate. Uh, absolutely. But um, so this is going to be with us for quite some time. And in terms of this, the potential for it to make a comeback uh, on an immune level, are we going to be better prepared for it coming back? To be confirmed, again, we don't know. Yeah. If this herd immunity theory takes hold, might not be too bad. Mm. If a vaccine rocks up in 12 months, Brilliant. will it? Don't know. There's lots and lots of vaccine candidates being looked at, but because we are pretty much starting from the beginning, there's been a bit of research looking at other coronaviruses down the years. Now, the common cold, one of the causes of that is a coronavirus. The oh, haze, really? Yeah, yeah. There's several different types of coronavirus, some of which are seen in animals. And not, not so far being seen in humans. The common cold is a coronavirus. You've heard of SARS, of course, from years back. MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, from camels, right? Camels, exactly, yeah. Bit racist at times, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you know, when I went to Egypt, someone offered me 130 camels for my wife. Did they? Yeah. Did they have yeah, a virus? <laughs> I don't know if they had the virus. <laughs> yeah. 130 camels, mate. You'd be richer and happier. Yeah. Anyway, with the camels. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there's lots of different coronaviruses, of which the common cold is one of the causes. One of the main causes of common cold, I, I just like the word, is the rhinovirus. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the coronavirus causes the common cold. I've actually lost a point of what the question originally was. The question was, was, are we going to get a vaccine anytime soon? So, yeah, so there has been lots of research on the common cold, including vaccine stuff, fairly recently and back in the day. And with SARS, sorry, SARS and MERS mm. and just coronavirus generally, there's been a bit of laboratory stuff going on to kind of prod and poke the virus and look at the immune response in a, in a laboratory setting. Um, we've, but it's not really got anywhere and it's not really been a focus. And actually, I would argue going forward, and it should have been already, that viruses with pandemic potential, I mean, new, we've had warning shots with SARS and things like that, that coronavirus is potentially that. We should have done tons more in the what we call inter-pandemic period between scary times with research and development, um, looking at things like vaccines and therapeutic and diagnostics and all those other sorts of things. Um, but we haven't done. So we've been playing catch-up. So with Ebola, when that was a big outbreak in West Africa, a lot of work's been done since. But I mean, one of the other things I do actually for research is looking at how research money is spent. So we've got this big global um, data, database of how about $100 billion of research money has been spent around the world over the last 20 years on infectious diseases. And we've looked at things like coronavirus and Ebola and flu. And if you want to, look at mad cow's disease. Remember that from years back? Mm -hmm. But that's not a virus. That's a prion, isn't it? That's a prion. It's a protein. Very good knowledge there. I'm impressed. I'll I'll give you a gold star afterwards. Um, But funding follows the kind of public health emergencies or Mm. the, the public health concerns rather than being in advance. And that's something we've been very bad at in the global health community is looking at problems in advance, doing a bit of kind of forecasting and trying to work things out more so. We started to get a bit better, but we've seen here that we're nowhere near good enough. So I still haven't answered the question. Coronavirus vaccines, the first phase one trial, that's the first time you chuck a vaccine into a human being to see what happens to it. That's just started in America. Over the next few weeks, we'll probably see a few more vaccine candidates trialed in a similar fashion, but we are way behind the curve. So it'll be minimum of 12 months I reckon, before we have even a half-decent vaccine. And the first vaccines you see are often not necessarily the best ones. Um, because there's a process of refinement, I imagine. process of refinement. So it might help that there's lots and lots of competing vaccines and who will hopefully all share data so you can kind of just um, 
process all that information in a bit more real time than you would normally. But we'll be exceptionally lucky and fortunate to have a cracking vaccine in 12 months' time. I suspect it'll probably be longer than that. A vaccine might be better than nothing, but it might not be the kind of holy grail that cures everything. It might give you cancer. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> Keep it light. Um, Michael, what is the chance that this could mutate into an even more serious strain, which proves even more deadly for us? See, viruses mutate all the time anyway, and they very rarely mutate into a more serious strain. And generally speaking, what you see actually is when a virus hangs around in the human long enough, it kind of adapts to its host. It's not good for the virus if it kills everyone it sees instantly, because then it can't be spread. Mm. The, the chain stops. So something like flu is quite good. So it doesn't kill that many people, but it, it kind of is easy to spread. Measles as well. Um, that's the kind of most successful kind of virus. It's one that makes you ill enough to spread it, but doesn't kind of knock you out altogether. So mutations of viruses don't necessarily mean bad. They mutate all the time anyway. Most mutations mean nothing. Um, and whilst it theoretically could get worse and be more difficult to treat or so on, actually it's more likely to get slightly more mild, if anything. But we don't know what will happen. That, that's all to be confirmed. It's such a new virus. It's only jumped into human three months ago. Whereas measles and flu we've had for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. So we know a bit more about how they evolve and so on. But you can expect probably the coronavirus to behave in a similar fashion. And what, what do you say to those people who go, this is a man-made virus, it was made in the laboratories of Wuhan, how convenient, they have this massive laboratory, and all of a sudden it started there, and it's the, the Chinese are using it to dominate the world. See, there was a paper published, as I speak just yesterday, in, I think it was in Nature, one of the, the big scientific journals, that pointed out that this is, I'm, I'm going to swear actually, this is bollocks, this kind of man-made theory. Um, and they pretty much, they don't use that swear word, but they pretty much say exactly that. Basically, dear conspiracy theorists, please stop it. So they can show the sort of the genetic lineage of it and exactly how, it, um, how it's evolved and show that it's not a man-made virus. It's probably come from, almost certainly come from bats as the first originator. Bats host viruses so well and they don't have symptoms. Many of our sort of potential future threats are hanging around the bats right now. There was probably an intermediate... Mike, you've got to be careful. This could initiate <laughs> yeah. a, a whole swathe of racist attacks against bats. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think I think people. Um, I, th I think I can say people should steer clear of bats, including eating them, which has been the problem in China. Mm. The fact that bats are on the menu, mm. and in these weirdly kind of big markets with, you've seen the sort of the, the menus in Chinese of everything they've got on the menu, and people have translated it. And there's pangolins, this kind of cute little animal that's on the menu there. Um, they basically chuck all these animals in a in this market together, um, and then they. Um, that they eat them all. So there's kind of the potential for transfer of genetic material and viruses on between the animals, and then the humans are eating it. And also humans are preparing it, so they're kind of slaughtering and getting covered in blood and so on. So that's probably where the virus started in bats, probably via an intermediate host. And a pangolin is one of the theories. We don't quite know that yet. But this paper kind of refutes the man-made theory. And also that point about there's a lab in Wuhan that's the only level four lab in China. Level four is the kind of highest level of pathogen, Ebola and things like that. Mm. That's how it's kind of level one to four. So common cold is level one, Ebola is level four. Everything else is in the middle. I don't know if it's still the only, one, only level four one in China, but there is one in Wuhan. The way that conspiracy theory falls down, in my view, is that coronavirus is not a level four pathogen. It's in level two labs or level three labs at best. So the level four thing is completely irrelevant because you don't need a level four, level four lab to deal with it or 
research it. Mm. So again, I'm going to use a swear word again. It's bollocks. But but also, I mean, I, uh, our regular viewers will find this funny. But uh, a relative of mine used to work on the Soviet bioweapons program because I'm from Russia originally. Okay. And I spoke to him. I'm edging slowly away. <laughs> well, we, we did have to drive past Salisbury to get there. Actually, uh, brought back great memories for Constantine. <laughs> yes, that spire still looking good. But. Um, he was saying, look, if you were developing a biological weapon, this is like the worst biological weapon in history because what you want with a biological weapon is you want to kill healthy young men mm. uh, who are the enemy army and you want to do it quickly. You don't want to have a week-long incubation period when they don't even have any symptoms. And you want to have a lethality rate over 1%, of a significant level of 1%. So it certainly wasn't... The, you know, the idea that it's designed as a biological It's almost like ridiculous. the virus was made in China. <laughs> no quality. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and breaks down after six months. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I, I do agree. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, but p- people do like the, the conspiracy theories, don't they? Especially in times of panic, because people yeah. are desperate for information. They don't trust a lot of people. They don't trust Boris Johnson in telling them things. And I understand that. I don't like Boris Johnson either. Where I think Boris Johnson has actually done quite well so far in this is he's not said very much at all. He's basically pointed at the scientists either side of him and basically said, right, you answer those questions. So when you have the press conferences with him, the chief scientific advisor, the chief medical officer, who are both brilliant, chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, his background is infectious diseases. He's the perfect man for this situation right now. Um, But during those press conferences, you kind of see Boris answering questions on a subject he knows nothing about, nor should he. He's a politician who's kind of used to handling questions about whether Pretty Patel bullied people in, in kind of you know, the ministry or whatever, he can handle those questions. That's what he's designed to do. To ask, to answer questions on public health and epidemiology, he, you can almost see him panicking slightly whenever he's speaking about it, but he does at least refer to the people either side of it, which is good. We need to hear from those people. But obviously when it's still framed as the government is telling us to stay indoors and not go to the pub, there's still a lot of distrust about that. Um, and conspiracy theories crop up. So a... Someone I know emailed me the other day. I've had so many inquiries from people I've not spoken to in years. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, remember me, I've got a question for you. Yeah. And one of the questions I had was, um, there's a conspiracy theory going around that if you blast yourself in the face or the head, right, the heat would kill the virus. Um, <laughs> that sounds brilliant. Yeah. Well, no, hold on. Can I, just as a, as a layman, can I have a theory that the temperature you would need to do that would be so hot it would burn your face off? I suspect there might be secondary consequences before you got as far as a virus. Yeah. The thing is, that's also, <laughs> we haven't researched. We haven't done a clinical trial yeah. on blasting yourself in the face of the hairdryer. Mm-hmm. So we, we haven't tested this. We can't sort of say, we can say, no, that's nonsense. But then if somebody says, prove it, we can't prove it. We can say, look, it's nonsense. You'd also have to go and take that theory further and say, right, all the world's infectious disease experts, all of them, none of them reckon you can cure it by blasting yourself in the face with a hairdryer. But you, like crackpot conspiracy theorist person over there, you reckon you can. So the, the video I got sent of it was by someone who just happened to have a few books to sell. It's by someone who is, I can't remember their name, otherwise I would have said it. Mm. Um, but they wrote a book called something like Cure the Common Cold. It's quite an old book. So whoever that person is. They're not a doctor, they're not a medical researcher, they have no background effects of diseases, but they do think you can cure coronavirus by blasting yourself in the face of the hairdryer. Um, and by the way, here's a few books I've written in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the conspiracy theorists rock up with their things to sell and a, um, a theory that it doesn't have to be accurate, I mean, that's clearly so silly. It doesn't have to be an accurate theory. It just has to catch people's attention and be circulated for it to kind of achieve its goal. 
And there's just so much of that out there. There's a lot of scam potential in times of scariness. So I mean, I'm, one thing I'm concerned about with this kind of community spirit that's building, which is great, there'll be a lot of very well-meaning actions that will have consequences that no one had really thought of. And that probably will inf- include a few um, unscrupulous types doing kind of you know, supermarket runs for old people whilst nicking a few of their valuables while their back's turned. There will be a bit of that happening. You can just guarantee it. So those secondary consequences of it are also important. We need to try to, we have to work it out as we go along. How much kind of community action groups, how much good will come out of them compared to how much negative will come out of them? Hopefully it'll be kind of a net positive. But we do need to think a little bit about, again, the vulnerable people in the society who we are trying to help and who a few, a very small number of unscrupulous types will try to very much not help. Well, the law of unintended consequences is so important here because mm. you were talking earlier about shutting schools. You get these people, you know, Piers Morgan and others screaming on Twitter, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And, uh, you know, the, the, there's so many unintended consequences to many of these issues. I mean, you know, shutting down schools, the point you made is, nurses doctors have children if they have to stay at home with the children they can't work also children then end up with grandparents potentially spreading the virus to vulnerable people so although teachers mental health will skyrocket not being around children no, so. one, no one cares about teachers, <laughs> mate. And, uh, so th- th- we it's i mean we've got to be sensible about this and the other point of course is you start shutting things down that has a huge economic impact the economy tanks that kills people too you know, so there's got to be a balanced response to this. We can't just shut everything down and, and just focus on that alone, can we? No, so the economic consequences will be huge of this. Um, and the social consequences, some of which we just touched on. But again, elderly people not being visited by their relatives anymore or not as much as they were, that's a problem for them because they rely on that kind of social contact um, to kind of enjoy their day. Go get a respirator and go and see your mother. <laughs> That's ironically what a friend of mine has done. He's actually taken a respirator to go and see his parents. Full-on respirator? Yeah. Or just a mask? Uh, No, 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 full-on respirator. But can you console these people who are looking at their elderly relatives and think, oh, they're going to die and all the rest of it? Is that hyperbole or should we prepare ourselves for the fact that actually these people we've had in our lives for so long, our grandparents, our great-uncles, they might not be around for a, a while. We're going to see excess death in the elderly from this. So some people are going to lose relatives that they otherwise wouldn't have lost if this pandemic hadn't occurred. Um, To make it slightly cheerier, the death rates in the over 70s is kind of, depending on how old they are, it kind of varies kind of 5, 10, 20% sort of number. So actually most people aren't dying of it. But obviously many people still are dying. I mean, I'm an epidemiologist, so I look at numbers on a spreadsheet quite a lot. And it's kind of, it's depersonalised, it's just a mortality rate. But then if I kind of think back to my own family and think about my elderly relatives, I've got one relative who's over 90, and I'm sort of thinking, if she gets it, big problems potentially in terms of her health. And she's in relatively good health for someone in their 90s, very stubborn and very cheerful. So the kind of withdrawal of social contact for her in particular, because she is a very sociable person still, is a tricky thing, and I don't quite know how to handle that for the best, to be honest. Um, in the same way that I do worry if she and other older relatives, particularly those who've got existing comorbidities, as we've discussed, if they get it, again, it's more likely to be serious. So I can number crunch during the day, and then at home I come, come at night and I do worry. I think about these things. So, And I, I don't know 
what the answer is on that particular and point. And touching and going to the situation in, in Italy, is that why the situation in Italy is so bad? Because they have a very high percentage, I think something like 23% of people aged 60 or over, or is there something very specific happening in Italy? Because at the moment, people are going, look what's happening in Italy, this is going to be happening here. So we probably think that our at least numbers of cases, though kind of peaks and curves on the graphs, will follow something similar to Italy. We are a few weeks behind, so that's an advantage, so we can kind of watch what other countries are doing and plan a little bit accordingly. So I think our early case detection and contact tracing, which is basically when you find out a case, you kind of ask, who have you met, who have you been in a room with, that sort of thing. That did slow the progress of the virus in this country, which has been very helpful to buy us time just to work out a bit better what to do. The high mortality rate in Italy, I don't actually quite know precisely why it's much higher there or a lot higher than in many countries. I think that demographic profile of Italy and England is not too different. I think they do have more older people as a proportion of their population than we do. But I don't quite know precisely why it's done. There's probably as a range of factors that each contribute a bit. It might be that there's more older people. It might be that the health services weren't quite so prepared as us in the UK. I don't know if that's true. I'm just hypothesising it might be true. There's also more kissing. They're, they're, more, they're more tactile, more affectionate people. And, and families are closer knit together in different generations. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, those are all really valid points. And actually, the behavioural science of this is firstly tricky. Secondly, I think massively underrated. People like me who are number crunchers, we kind of look at the numbers and then there's the modellers who come along to predict numbers. Throwing in the behavioural side of things is so important. It's why you can't obviously say Italy or somewhere else is doing lockdowns, why aren't we doing that here? It might be we should be doing that here, but we know from previous studies in times of, for example, during the 2009 swine flu pandemic that there were analyses done looking at the behavioural factors across different countries. And we know that people in different countries respond in different ways. There's different levels of compliance. When it comes to washing your hands, people wash their hands in a similar amount of way. But when it came to restricting your um, contact patterns, your social distancing, that was massively variable across countries. So again, a country like Italy, which is very, very, like you said, lots of kissing, lots of hugging, lots of intergenerational living, if that's the right phrase, mm -hmm. those are different factors that will apply into modelling in Italy that isn't so relevant here. The weighting should be a bit different. So I'm always a little bit cautious of saying the government's doing the wrong thing, particularly when it is clearly backed by some of the leading scientists. They're seeing data that we haven't seen. I think we should see it. There should be more transparency about what evidence they're using to make decisions. But as I speak, we haven't seen it. They have. They've got an idea of what the evidence says and of the local context. So we can learn lessons from Italy, but we shouldn't necessarily replicate Italy because it's not the same situation here. We're all at different stages of the outbreak as well. So there will be different interventions at different times. That's fair enough, I think. And there's, London is fair to say that it seems to be ahead of the curb, if you will. Why is that? Just if you could break that down as to why. Is it the fact that people are going on the tube a lot? Is it buses? What, what is it about being in London? Or is it the fact that a lot of people rent and live together? I mean, it's a high density of population, which is one key factor. Um, in rural areas, population density is much lower. Um, and the fact that in London you are often cramming more people into a small space, for example, on public transport. Public transport is an interesting one. We know that international travel is a big conduit for spread of infectious diseases. That's kind of fairly obvious in a way. But we also have the evidence to prove it because we can track people. We know who gets on and off a plane. We can track where they go. And if they become a case in a new country, then you see exactly where it's come from. 
With buses and trains, you've no idea who's on the train. So you don't quite know. You can kind of do some content tracing. You can say, well, I was on the Piccadilly line for 20 minutes this morning. But you're in a cram space for a fairly short period of time. And you also don't quite know if you pick up a virus. You've done lots of, there's been lots of other contacts during the day as well. So there's lots of opportunities for contacts in London that you don't have in a rural area, for example. But it's also hard to pin down where you picked up your infection from. It could be any one of those contacts. It could be the door handle as you left the train. It could be on the train. It could be in the office. It could have been in the pub in the evening. Um, it could have been on the pint glass you touched that someone else had used beforehand that hadn't been properly cleaned. All those sorts of things. So it makes kind of the epidemiology of things so fascinating, but often hard to disentangle. But the higher population density is, is the big one. And that makes a lot of sense. And th- that kind of leads me into the question that I wanted to ask you is, in the world that we live in now, the globalized, interconnected, everyone traveling everywhere world. Is this going to keep happening with all kinds of different things? Because we've seen it, you know, you mentioned SARS and MERS. Those those didn't explode to the level that this is likely to, to go to. But are we going to, you know, continue to see this kind of thing happening? It's easier now for outbreaks to happen, for easier for pandemics to happen. Pandemics just don't happen very often, but we know there always will be a next time. So certainly when this is said and done, whenever that be, we need to learn lessons and properly prepare globally. Um, There's health systems in the poorer parts of the world that if they do get a lot of pandemic cases in their country, they're not going to be able to cope. Ebola decimated parts of West Africa that they're not recovered from now. So globalisation includes the spread of infectious diseases, but also... In sub-Saharan Africa, wherever you go, there's a can of coke. These things, which then sort of leads to things like tooth decay and obesity and cardiovascular disease. So even non-infectious diseases do spread because of globalisation and increased connectivity. Obviously, it's great that we can travel to all parts of the world and we've got the kind of the, the internet that can connect everyone. Um, the downside is that as sometimes as infectious diseases generally decline. Clearly not right now with this one, but on the whole, infectious diseases in most parts of the world are going down. We're seeing non-communicable diseases like diabetes, hypertension, cancer go up. Um, That's in part also because there's increasingly aging populations. So whereas in the poorer parts of Africa, let's say, the life expectancy even 10, 20 years ago might have been 40. Now it might be 60 or so. So those age-related conditions kick in, plus also the fact that you might see a a fast food branch or a can of Coke almost anywhere in, in different parts of the world. So it brings new health challenges to to everyone, um, including infectious diseases and including things that have pandemic potential. Well, one of the things it also shows, isn't it, that we are as weak as our weakest link in a sense as as a global society of people. So if there's a wet market in China where you've got these different animals all, you know, bleeding all over each other as they're being slaughtered and whatever, even close interaction with humans... We we can't just like be okay. That's no nothing to do with us because that then leads to what we're having now, which is thousands of people dying all over the world. Yeah. So occasionally there'll be that perfect storm where the animal is slaughtered that happens to be infectious, and it contacts another animal, which then absorbs the infection, and it sort of it then meets the human meets the human, and the human is able to spread it, and and then it kind of grows exponentially. It kind of needs a lot of factors to come together, but. We've seen that it is possible that kind of mechanism does work and sometimes works frighteningly well. With those food markets, I did see one newspaper article 
a few weeks back saying that China had now banned them. Mm. I didn't see any follow-up on that. And I didn't see, didn't see that claim more widely. So I don't know if that's the case. But I think certainly I think Chinese will need to look very closely at those food markets and try and work out, do they need to be eating all these random animals? Some of them are endangered. I think pangolins are probably endangered. Um, probably are in China anyway. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, they have a very dangerous life in China. <laughs> yeah, um, But there's, there's not many of them around the world. So whether that kind of importation of sort of fun and funky animals needs to happen anyway. But there's, I mean, food markets are kind of embedded in Chinese culture. So it's hard just to say to someone, you're not doing that anymore. But also they have a huge population and lots of mouths to feed. That they're, they're doing everything they can to try and feed them. Yeah, indeed. Whether I don't know to what extent pangolins might be feeding many people in terms of the food prices. <laughs> but I take the point. Obviously, they need to feed their populations. Um, and they have different diets to us. And that's obviously fair enough. But we saw, again, it's back to the behavioural side of things. Can you shut down these, these food markets without much of consequence? If the Chinese government says to the population we're doing it, Actually, well, you probably can. In other cultures, it's harder. So with here's an example from bird flu, 2005 or thereabouts. There was a lot of concern that it would get into Africa and spread there. With such poor health systems, that's a really big problem. In, I think it was Nigeria, there were some cases in chickens, which was the, kind of the, the host of bird flu. Actually, bird flu is around today. affects a few people in Southeast Asia. affects birds a lot. Some birds are fine and can fly around, and therein lies the problem. They then infect other birds who, who suffer. So it still happens. But a few chickens in a Nigerian village got infected. And the kind of the ministry came along and said, right, we'll take those, thank you very much. And on the way out, they said, well, we'll, we'll give you compensation. But that's no good to the village, because that's their food for the next few days right there. So the village followed them at a discreet distance. The ministry people basically went a few miles up the road and buried them. The village waited till they'd gone, and then dug them up and ate them. So... Clearly, public health-wise, you shouldn't be doing that. But these are people who have one source of food, and that's their chickens. Mm-hmm. And they've been promised money, but they don't trust the government, and they may well not get it. Therefore, you see why they've done it. But, and we saw with Ebola as well that a lot of the problems are kind of with the bodily fluids. So if you're touching a dead body, which happens a lot in Africa, you, this is kind of part of their burial process. It's very intimate. It's not like in the UK where they're in a box and you don't see them. You do have the bodies open, you touch them a lot. And there was spread of Ebola quite significantly from touching dead bodies. And with Ebola around, there were more dead bodies to touch. So it was a problem. And we, in the kind of Western world, the global north, as is often the phrase now, handle it quite badly by basically kind of running into Africa saying, stop that. And the population said, no, these are our embedded cultures. What do you know about us? My dad's just died. Leave me alone. Again, you understand that kind of response. So... Again, I'll come back to the point. I think social science and anthropology and behavioural sciences, it's so underrated. We do take the mickey out of them a little bit, particularly us number crunchers. We look down on the social sciences and we so shouldn't because they are probably more valuable than us, I think, in these kind of outbreak situations. And do you think if it gets into, for instance, South America, like you said, or parts of Africa where the, you know, the health system isn't what it should be, and you know the, the networks aren't strong enough that it could decimate a population. No, I mean there are already some cases in, in for example, in Africa. There's quite a few in Egypt, but other case, other countries are only reporting anyway a few very low numbers of cases. There will probably be a lot more than what they've got. And the problem is, I'm not, I do research in Ghana, West Africa, and also started links with colleagues in Togo, which borders Ghana. And I was in both countries in, in just a few weeks ago. And you see their health services and health systems, and there's no spare capacity. The NHS 
has a limited amount of capacity that will be overwhelmed at some point in the coming months. It will be. We just know it will. In Africa, most countries have no capacity at all. So there is the potential that it could get very, very scary for their populations um, with if there are vast numbers of cases there. Oh, hold on. You say the NHS will be overwhelmed. We know that. Isn't the whole part of the government's strategy to flatten the peak so that we never get to that point. Are you saying it's inevitable they will be overwhelmed? I mean, all the evidence we have, including the recent modelling papers that came out of Imperial College, says that yes, the NHS will be overwhelmed at some point. And the chief medical officer has said that in his press conferences as well. So the kind of these interventions to try to reduce these big peaks, the peak is still going to go above NHS capacity. Um, so we will. what you're saying is within weeks or maybe months, we will be in the position where Italian doctors are now, where they're having to basically triage who who they give life-saving support to? I mean, almost certainly, yeah. Um, and that, that's pretty clear that we can expect that. Hopefully it won't happen. But that is what we expect to happen in two or three months' time. Well, I think this is really important because when we talk about people not complying with the government's advice and all this kind of thing, that's what we're talking about, right? That That's the end product of that behaviour. Yeah, so... Social distancing is a key part of this, and it's something that we all have to do, we all contribute to. So if there is low compliance with these kind of measures that we put in place, and then the NHS is even more overwhelmed than it could have been, actually that's our fault to some extent. So before we wrap up the interview then, just tell us, uh, wash our hands, right? But this virus is is mainly spread through just breathing the same air as other people, isn't it? So it's, it's a respiratory one, so it kind of goes out in aerosols, but you touch surfaces and, yeah. and so on where the virus is. So washing your hands, it's so unsexy and dull, but it's so important anyway. Mm. Or we should be washing our hands thoroughly many times a day. Let me ask the question in a different way. If you had it now, would we get it? Potentially. You would be defined, you two, and behind the camera there, you'd be defined as contacts of mine. So a contact was defined as something like within two meters for 15 minutes or more. So if you sat at a restaurant next to someone who's two meters away, then that's a contact. We've been sat in that kind of proximity. So there would certainly, there'd be a re- reasonable chance that you would have it. So actually, if I have got it and I develop symptoms tomorrow, I'm yeah. probably infectious now. Oh yeah, you've been infectious for days if you, if you had symptoms tomorrow, right? Prob- I've probably been infectious one or two days, I reckon. Okay. Yeah. Um, the amount that you can spread the virus before you show symptoms most respiratory infections, it's a day or two beforehand. It's not usually a long period of time. Right. The, the incubation period for when you get exposed to when you show symptoms, mm. that's usually, most people, is about five days. So I think the infectious period, which is the time when you can spread the virus before you show symptoms, it's a slightly different definition, that's probably one to two days. Can I just say I'm offended, I am, that you've referred to him as my contact. Anyway, <laughs> but there we go. But there's one question I really want to dig down on which was that you said the NHS would be overwhelmed. And I think people are not really taking on board what that means. Can you explain in clear detail what does it mean when the NHS or health system is overwhelmed? What does that look like in real world? Figures, data, situations. I can't provide the figures or the data on it because it's kind of a hypothetical, probably will happen scenario. But what it means is there won't be enough beds in hospital, there won't be enough doctors and nurses and someone to treat you. There won't be enough bits of equipment like respirators and ventilators. We've heard a lot about that over the last few weeks. Um, so, I mean, like you say, with doctors in Italy, they're having to triage their patients to try to work out who to treat, who to give the ventilators to. At the moment, if 
someone needs a ventilator, they can have it on the whole because there's enough capacity in the health service. When we get overwhelmed, there won't be enough ventilators. So it could get very, very tricky at that point. So again, it's, it's down to all of us to lessen the impact of that because that could be our grandmother or mother or, or relative or so on that's sat in that hospital bed who hasn't got the equipment they need because in part we weren't very good with our social dis- distancing compliance. So that effectively means that, uh, that the doctor looks at two patients, they've got a respirator and they go, well, this one's over 75, this one's 65, this one stands a 20% chance more of making it, I'm going to give the respirator to them. And unfortunately that patient is left to their own devices almost. I mean, they'll be they'll be treated as best they can, yeah. but if you've not got enough bits of equipment to go around, then you do have to work out who to give it to. I mean, again, to kind of go back to Ghana, again, when I'm speaking to people in the hospitals there, and they say, we've got loads of children with pneumonia here. I've got a very limited amount of capacity to test what bug they've got. I've got maybe two tubes a day, two, two blood tests I can take a day to kind of work out what's wrong with the children. There's 50 of them in the hospital. Which two am I picking? That's what happens in Ghana and countries like that every single day. To a lesser extent, but still important extent here, our medics are going to be facing those sorts of questions. It's not going to be fun. It doesn't sound like fun at all, um, which is why we wanted to talk to you, because I think it's important that this information gets out there as much as, as we can help with that. Um, but thank you very much for taking the time and, and having us in your home and uh, not infecting us, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll re- uh, reserve judgment on that. We'll come, let's come back to me in a few days' time. We'll yeah. kind of compare notes. We'll, we'll find out if we're still alive in a few days. But um, the last, we only have one more question for you. And the last question we always ask is, and, and in this case, in this particular context, what is the one thing that no one is talking about that we ought to be talking about? Do you know, I'm going to say the word scabies. You weren't expecting that, were you? No, no. Now, scabies is one of my most fascinating bugs that I do research on, including in Ghana. Um, it's a mite, so it's a bit like a head lice, um, that is literally everywhere. It causes itchiness, rashes. It's really unpleasant. It doesn't kill many people. Um, so you certainly won't have heard much about scabies in the last few weeks because everyone's talking about the stuff that does kill people, which is fair enough. But scabies is kind of these one of the under-thought-about conditions that is rife around the world. We have it. We did a study in the UK looking at scabies in care homes, um, where there's plenty of it, and it infects people with dementia more than people without dementia. So it infects the most vulnerable people, and so on and so forth. There's about 400 million cases or so of scabies every single year around the world. It's vast. It's unpleasant. It's hard to get rid of. It's badly diagnosed. There's a lot of stigma attached to it. We should talk more about scabies. When we stop talking about coronavirus, do that first, but then secondary, scabies. And who thought epidermal just weren't sexy? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, It's great chatting with you. And uh, are you on social media, by the way? Are you sharing information, putting anything out there for people to follow? Spreading fake news. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on Twitter, Michael G. Head is my Twitter handle. I'm not really on many other social media, so Twitter's probably the key. Not TikTok. Uh, <laughs> not yet. Maybe maybe if I've got more time in any kind of a lockdown situation, maybe I'll yeah. be bored and do a few videos. But for yeah. now, that's where I am. So yeah. go follow Michael, and uh, we'll see you very soon if we're all still here with another brilliant episode. See you next week, guys.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.